And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is a one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would really remind us that you are a God who speaks. And that even in this time, uh, as your word is preached, you speak to us uh, through your word. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would um, give us ears to hear uh, what uh, you have to say to us today. Uh, and that your uh, message to us would uh, not only be to us as a community, but uh, even to us individually, and uh, that you would give us greater clarity as we uh, seek to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, good morning, everybody. So we are going through First John during the season, and one of the reasons we're going through First John is because we wanted to emphasize the importance of love, which is one of the things that John emphasizes in this letter. And um, you know, as I've been saying, John doesn't necessarily look at things in this like linear fashion, but uh, I think he looks at things from like an entire uh, system in terms of the dynamics of the Christian life. So uh, the illustration that I find helpful that I keep coming to over and over again is an illustration of a glow-in-the-dark toy. If this toy is exposed to the light, then it will be able to shine in the darkness. But it's impossible for this toy to glow in the dark if it hasn't been exposed to any light. But it's also impossible not to glow in the dark if it has been exposed to the light. And so similarly, John is saying this, if you are walking in the light, in fellowship with God, then what will happen is you will love one another. And uh, what I want to do today is uh, I want to draw something out in terms of how John addresses his community. And I want to anchor it, I guess, in the theme of family. Now, this passage is very rich with family language. Uh, John addresses this community as little children. Uh, he talks about the love that the Father has given so that we should be called children of God. Then he talks about how you can tell whose child one is uh, by whether or not they are practicing righteousness and love. And so that's, that's basically a theme we're going to anchor this message around. And I'm going to start with a very basic first question, which is this. Uh, how does one end up belonging to the family of God? How does one enter into the family of God? 
And I think there's two answers that John gives here that are interconnected, but one answer is more direct and one answer is a little bit indirect. Uh, the direct answer is found in chapter three, verse one, when John says, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And basically we are called children of God because of the love of the father, that the love that he bestowed upon us. Now uh, I want to point out something, you know, uh, Paul calls this being adopted as sons, uh, for example, in the book of Romans. But what I want to do is I want to point out a, a, a difference in terms of how Paul and John uh, talk about this topic for a moment. Uh, Paul says we are adopted as sons, and the usage of sons I don't think is meant to be exclusive in the sense of excluding uh, women, but it's meant to communicate something special uh, about our relationship with God. In the ancient world, there is this unique relationship between fathers and sons in that sons were given uh, the inheritance from the father. And similarly, there is an inheritance that awaits all believers because now we all share that status of sonship. And that is part of where we draw our Christian hope from. But John doesn't use the word sons when he talks about being children of God. He, he actually uses the Greek word for children in describing our relationship with God. And you have to wonder why. And I think John's emphasis is not necessarily about uh, the legal status that we have as believers as recipients of this glorious inheritance, but I actually think John wants to frame our relationship with the Father as one of intimacy and care. You see, for John, it is not just about a change in legal status, but in a way, there's a fundamental change to who we are in our nature. Uh, I said before, there's an indirect answer about how one belongs to God's family, and I think that indirect answer is the new birth. Uh, the new birth is hinted at in chapter 2, verse 29, when he talks about those who have been born of him. So we aren't just called children of God, but we become children of God. Uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus talks about being born again in this conversation with Nicodemus in uh, John chapter 3. And uh, you think about this idea of being born. When you are born, you actually don't really do any of the work in order to be born. Uh, what happens is your mothers did all the work when you were born and you kind of just let birth happen to you. It's, uh, it's completely passive. And that's also how faith and salvation happens, which is why the Bible says salvation is by grace. It's not something that you achieve as if you can birth yourself, but it is actually something that happens to you. And just like a physical birth, in the new birth, someone else is doing all the work. And in our case, it's Jesus who does all the work so that you can belong to God's family, so that you can be born again, so that you can receive life, so that you can be in relationship with a father whose heart of love is for his children. Now, I think that's actually one of the most life-impacting things the Bible says about God and about us. And uh, how do we know that? Well, I think you only have to look at broken human relationships between fathers and their children to really see how important a father's love is. Uh, you know, my professor at school, uh, back in the day, he used to lead this multi-ethnic church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And in that area, you know, they planted a church in uh, a lower income, uh, prim primarily uh, black community. But also in that area are all the, uh, you know, top echelon schools. So, in his congregation, there are also a lot of Asian American students from places like Harvard and MIT. 
And so as he was pastoring, he said uh, he noticed something about the Asian American students in his church. And he said, um, you know, most of them who had like some uh, issues, a lot of them were rooted in like these daddy issues. Uh, either their fathers lacked affection, affection or fathers never told them how much they loved them or they were hard to please or uh, for some they even abandoned the family or they were absent from the family or they were abusive in some way whether physically or emotionally and on and on and uh, he saw you know that actually has a profound impact in terms of uh, the overall I guess health of an individual and you know I bet one of the reasons why some of them work so hard to get into places like Harvard and MIT it could have been to get their father's approval uh, but even though they were so outwardly successful what he says is inwardly uh, he could see that there was a lot of brokenness and part of that brokenness came from the fact that they didn't have great fathers and they had a lot of, um, you know, relational issues with their fathers. Now, I know that can sound a little bit like, uh, you know, Freudian psychology, but I actually think the Bible has a category for that called generational sin. Now, what is it about a father's love that is so important? I think when you're a child, your father is supposed to make you feel accepted and protected and safe. And when a child feels that, you know, they probably have a better chance of growing up whole because they won't be controlled by things like fear and things like shame. Because fear and shame are these really powerful forces that leads to all kinds of sin and dysfunction. And so when a child is afraid of their father or is shamed by their father, you know, the impact of that will probably reverberate throughout the life of that child, even into adulthood. And it may be through, um, you know, emotional distance or problems with intimacy or a desire to impress and achieve or the inability to receive criticism or some kind of deep-seated anger and bitterness or low self-esteem or a host of uh, other ways. Um, but fathers make a big impact. And conversely, when fathers make their children feel accepted and supported and protected and safe, then I think they feel a greater sense of security in order to be able to deal with the things that cause fear and shame in the world. Now, here's the reality. The reality is that all human fathers are going to be uh, broken to varying degrees, but God gives a kind of love that has a power to make us whole in spite of the ways our earthly fathers have failed to love their children in the right ways. And I think that's ultimately where we can derive a real sense of value and acceptance and security. We find it in belonging to our loving Heavenly Father's family as children of God. Now, by the way, uh, some people uh, out there, you know, I've read a couple different um, like books and studies and things like that. Uh, some people actually think a lot of our modern problems is are rooted in the fact that people are lonely and are longing for a sense of belonging. Uh, so, for example, I read one book where the author said, you know, this rise of political tribalism uh, is rooted in the disintegration of traditional tribes. And so people, they're longing for belonging and they're trying to find it in these different political tribes. Uh, not only that, but your sense of belonging is usually, um, you know, it's easy to root your sense of belonging and build a community around something that you're against, uh, around a common enemy. Um, I think 9-11 showed us that uh, when there was a common enemy uh, in the United States, you saw all these uh, signs that said, United we stand. And so um, I think the shared negativity is probably the thing that makes people feel uh, the greatest sense of belonging, which could be an explanation for the rise of you know, political tribalism. 
Uh, but I also read that a psychiatrist uh, had a study that argued that, you know, part of the reason why depression is on the rise is actually because loneliness is on the rise and people confuse the symptoms of loneliness with clinical depression. And so when someone shows up at the psychiatrist's office, they'll say, doctor, I'm depressed, and then they'll be prescribed some kind of medication. And, you know, of course that could be true for some, but uh, the psychiatrist was actually arguing, it could also be that people are just lonely because the symptoms for loneliness and depression are actually very similar. There's a lot of overlap there. All of that is to say uh, the reality of the father's love and the, and the fact that he uh, allows us to come into his family so that we can belong to him, uh, that we can be children of God, I think is a powerful truth that can bring great healing and great restoration and make us whole. And so the question is, how do, then do we take this reality that may be true, and how do we begin to experience it? Uh, when the pandemic first happened, you know, uh, my, my, I don't think my parents really took it that seriously. So my dad wouldn't really wear a mask. Uh, he wouldn't really be diligent in washing his hands for like 20 seconds and uh, taking the necessary precautions. And he would, you know, uh, go out to uh, my aunt's grocery store and things like that. And I think a few of you shared uh, about that, how you're trying to convince your parents about uh, the seriousness of this pandemic and to really take the precautions. You know, the pandemic was uh, this reality, but um, you know, he didn't necessarily live into or experience the reality in a way that affected him. And it actually wasn't until he got sick and then I got sick, but he doesn't think he got me sick. He thinks I got sick from Home Depot, but I think I got sick from him. But <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, it wasn't until we started getting sick um, that I guess the reality of it started to, um, you know, he started to experience the reality of it. And then after that, he started wearing masks and washing his hands and taking other precautions. Uh, all this is, you know, it's one thing to say, I know I'm a child of God. And if you're somebody who's been in the church for a long time, uh, you probably easily know that through songs and I guess through uh, reading the Bible and things like that, to know that you are a child of God. But what I'm saying is it's another thing to live in that reality, to really know and to experience that truly you are a child of God. And that's why we have to abide in him. Uh, my wife was saying she's been listening to 1 John uh, on audio uh, through the entire book. And she said the phrase that stuck out to her uh, was to abide in him. And it's true, if you read the entire letter, uh, that's one of the phrases that comes up over and over and over again. John says repeatedly, abide in him. And I looked it up and the word abide is actually used 16 times in these short five chapters. And they're mainly used in chapters two, three, and four. And we even see it a few times in today's passage in uh, verses six and nine. And so we have to ask the question, what does it actually mean to abide in him? And to answer this, I'm going to borrow uh, a picture that Jesus gives in the Gospel of John. So in John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And then he goes on to say, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now, I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if John were thinking about what Jesus says in this very passage when he's addressing this community and telling them to abide in Jesus. To abide in Jesus means to be connected to him. But this connection is an organic connection rather than a mechanical connection. And uh, you have to ask, what's the difference? Uh, 
for school, I had to read this book and it's called uh, The Cat and the Toaster. And based on that title, you have no idea what this book is about, but basically uh, it's talking about an approach to, uh, I guess, spirituality and approach to ministry. And the author is saying, you know, a lot of people actually approach their faith and approach ministry uh, as this institution with problems that can be fixed with best practices and uh, with uh, better decision-making and with uh, better strategies. And it's kind of like the same approach you would take if you had to fix a toaster, hence that's where the name comes from. Uh, if a certain part or a circuit is broken, then you need to identify the problem. You need to replace the circuit so that electricity can flow through and the toaster will be fixed. And that kind of approach means you're, you're thinking in like this linear fashion and you tend to see things as like a, a direct cause and effect. Um, but what this author says is, you know, ministry is more like a cat in that it's more like a living organism. Uh, when a cat is unhealthy, it may not necessarily be about fixing one component, um, which will probably frustrate those of you who are engineers, but rather you have to look at things holistically and ask, you know, how do we make this cat healthy again? Maybe the cat needs to start eating healthier foods along with going on a diet, along with getting some more exercise along with taking some medication. Maybe this cat is bored and needs some stimulation, or maybe this cat just needs to be cared for and loved for. You see, the solution uh, to bringing an organism back to health is not as linear as fixing a toaster because organisms work a little bit differently. And sometimes I wonder if we approach our spiritual vitality a little bit like that. We say, I have a problem with something in my Christian faith, so I just need to do X. And that's, you see, that's a mechanical approach. But our problem is not that we have a broken component that needs to be fixed, but we have this disease that has infected the entire person. Uh, our problem is that we have not or are not connected or we're not connected to the vine, uh, the very source of life. So how do we get nursed back to health? And Jesus says, connect to me in this organic way. Uh, how? By believing by trusting and by resting in him. And again, those are not like how-tos, right? It's not like 10 steps to a, um, a spiritually vi vital uh, life, uh, but these things are how we end up connecting to him. We have to believe in him, we have to trust in him, and we actually have to rest in him in all things. And the natural response of somebody who's more active, somebody who's a doer, uh, is not going to be that. And it's going to be, well, but tell me what to do. But I guess that's sort of the point of organic growth. There are things you know that are important like water, sunlight, and nutrients. So you do have to uh, engage in the things that are nurturing, spiritually nurturing. But you know, in organic growth, there's also this mysterious element. Uh, there's this unknown aspect of growth where you can't really control how a plant grows. Uh, believe it or not, uh, you know, we live in Jersey City and you know, in our backyard, uh, it's mostly concrete, but there's like this, you know, small outline of like dirt. And in that uh, patch of dirt, my parents uh, started growing some things and they actually grow grapes. So we, we literally have grapevines in our backyard. And I'm, I'm actually really baffled that these things grow in the backyard in this like small uh, patchy uh, patch of rocky soil in the middle of Jersey City. Um, but grapes are really growing there. Now, I know they need things like water and sunlight, but other than that, 
you know, there's no real controlling how these plants grow. Uh, I think there's like six trees back there, six grape trees, and like three of them are producing fruit, the other three are not. And I don't really know why. Um, but lo and behold, in at least three of them, grapes are starting to grow without any, you know, direct steps other than, you know, watering them and other than, uh, I guess, pruning them and exposing them to the sun. And that's kind of how organic growth works. Now, um, when Jesus says, abide in me, and when we talk about uh, really what it means to be connected to a life that is spiritually vital, uh, I think that's the illustration that we are uh, meant to think about. Um, it's not about, you know, getting fruit and trying to staple it onto the tree because that fruit eventually withers and dies away. But it's actually about being able to connect to Jesus in this organic way. It's about abiding in him. It's about uh, receiving the gift of faith to, to trust in him in all things, in all circumstances. And I think as we trust him, he reveals more of himself and his power and we get convicted and our faith continues to grow. And just like in organic growth, when, you know, branches will just get stronger and stronger. Uh, I think in a way, that's how God grows us and uh, in a way seals us to himself. Now, John also seems to emphasize uh, the practice of a believer here at this passage. So we, we have to definitely talk about that. And we have to see where it fits in with being a child of God. So he says in verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God of God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now this passage has, I think, caused some confusion, you know, just in the history of interpretation. And I don't know if uh, you heard it when I read it, but uh, it can sound a little bit confusing. It sounds like, it actually sounds like John is talking about a kind of sinless perfectionism. Uh, so you can easily read this and think, is, is John saying that Christians don't sin? Uh, but that can't be what he's saying because we already talked about uh, confessing our sins in the first chapter. So obviously John doesn't think that Christians are without sin or don't sin, but rather he's probably talking about a state of being where this, the heart is continually rebellious against God and towards God and continually turning away from him. And, uh, you know, that's how some of the commentaries are actually interpreting that word lawlessness. Uh, it's not referring to the Mosaic law, but it's actually referring to this general disregard for uh, a higher authority uh, in God himself. And so why should we be a people who practice righteousness rather than lawlessness? Well, simply put, that's how we represent someone who belongs in God's family or who is a part of God's family. It's through the practice of righteousness. Verse 10 says, by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is a one who does not love his brother. So you see, John, he talks about practicing righteousness and love as something that serves as evidence for who we are as children of God. And I think the way we should understand um, things like morality uh, within a system of grace and things like good works and good deeds within a system of grace is not through the context of salvation because none of these things earn salvation uh, because salvation is by grace, but we should probably look at it through the lens of identity. Uh, we do these things because of who we are, because who, of who God made us to be and redeemed us to be in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think our context necessarily functions like this anymore. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, I'm not sure. But you know, there were certain times and places in history 
where people were known by which family they belonged to. So if uh, the parents in a certain family had a certain kind of reputation, then people would expect, you know, kids would be similar to their parents in that way. So for example, if, uh, if the Lees are known to be really honest people, then the expectation was, you know, these children, they're going to grow up and they're going to become honest people as well because they belong to this family. Now, why? Because you're assuming that the kids are abiding with their parents as they grow up and their character and their values will be formed and shaped uh, by their parents. That's why we have this saying, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Likewise, if we are children of God and if we are abiding in him, then we should be a people who practice righteousness by virtue of who we are. And that is how we reflect whose family we belong to or whom, to whom we belong to as children of God. Now, um, this sermon is going a little bit longer than I wanted. So let me actually just uh, wrap it up a little bit and let me end with a story. And let me end with a word of encouragement. You know, someone this week uh, randomly emailed me and they, they said they felt compelled to pray for me and to tell me that the father says, I love you. Uh, if you know, uh, some of you know them, uh, Joanne and Isaac, um, but you know, I guess they were just praying one morning and they felt compelled to send me that email. And uh, you know, if God was trying to speak to me through this person, uh, I, was, I started to wonder, you know, why is this a word that I need to hear? And I think part of the reason actually might be that, um, by the way, it's very providential, and I'll, I'll explain why, because um, send it to me this week, and then the next passage of the sermon was this very passage, which talks about the Father's love. But anyway, um, I think part of the reason uh, uh, might be because, you know, as I uh, analyze my own heart, uh, I think it's been trending towards building my life upon another foundation uh, rather than the love of the Father. And the reason I say that is I think this pandemic has you know, it has been a struggle for uh, everybody to be sure, but uh, throughout this pandemic, I've felt like this low grade, uh, like discouragement in this season uh, all throughout. And I think part of the reason I feel that is I feel a little bit useless. Uh, I don't really know how to pastor and serve during this season. And it's a little bit uh, discouraging to me. But then I reflected on uh, the father's love and, um, to know that your father loves you, not based on what you achieve and what you do, is actually a very liberating thing. Uh, to know that the father has freely given his love to you and his heart for you simply because you are his child, it really takes this burden away of uh, trying to be worthy and trying to, um, I guess, build this identity for yourself that you think is worthy. Um, but it's something that you simply, um, yeah, find freedom in. You don't have to... Uh, work for approval or work for a sense of worthiness because actually God has made you worthy by bringing you into the fold of his family. And that's a very, you know, life transforming truth. And if it's something that is not just a, you know, like my dad, like a pandemic that you know is out there, but actually something that uh, becomes a reality for us, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, healing and restoration there. Now, uh, here's so first thing was that email second thing was the passage I had to preach but you know this week a theologian named J.I. Packer um, I don't know if any of you know but he was a very impactful theologian who wrote many important books he actually died this week at the age of 93 and so I got this email um, you know from this Christian organization about his death and at the end of the email 
there was a quote from one of his books, and I kid you not, this is what the quote said from one of his books. It says this, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. That's from J.I. Packer's Knowing God. And uh, I, I think all three of these things uh, providentially, uh, I think the Lord is trying to speak to me and remind me of the Father's love. But I also do hope that uh, maybe through me, the Lord is also trying to remind all of you about the Father's love. We truly have a Father who loves us. And because of that, we are children of God. Because of that, we belong. Because of that, we're declared worthy. Because of that, we have great freedom, liberation, safety, security in all things. And what, it, what response is there? I want to represent him well. So let's live lives of love and righteousness that we might represent the family that we belong to. Let's pray.